Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. I'm going to be covering a message that's part of a series called Lightning in the Fog, The Heartbeat and Hurdles of the Reformed Faith. And this was one of my missing recordings. But this was a, such a great topic. The, uh, the first four messages in that series were on what's the Reformed faith really about? What, was the, what were the questions it was answering? And um, what are its main documents, etc.? But then I covered four hurdles. What are four things that people who step into a Presbyterian Reformed setting sometimes have trouble with? And so the four hurdles were election. Some people struggle with that thought. The one today uh, on terms of uh, charismatic Pentecostalism and uh, the Reformed faith. Are we the, fro the frozen chosen and will always be that way? Or how do you view that whole thing about the Spirit, etc.? The infant baptism was the third. And the last that we've already covered was prayer and predestination don't let your doctrines murder your prayer life. So, but today our topic is uh, the ice and the fire on um, the whole idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, miracles, emphasis on prophecy and the gifts, and then uh, the Reformed guys, which is, you know, our tradition. But some people who listen to this recording may be on the other side of things. Pentecostalism started a little over 100 years ago in Azusa Street uh, in Los Angeles in 1906. Uh, it has become a, a fourth of all Christians on the earth now would consider themselves Pentecostals. And if you throw in the Charismatics, you're talking about a third of all Christianity. It's the part of Christianity that is growing the fastest. And uh, all of us have lived long enough that you've bumped into somebody that has, has asked you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And, and you know, why, why isn't your church a little bit more lively, etc.? And so after 50 years of thinking about it, I just wanted to share with you my thoughts and conclusions so far on that. Now, interestingly enough, it actually didn't, this kind of an emphasis in Christianity didn't appear just 100 years ago in the late 100s, around 180 A.D., by that time the church had gotten a little bit more established and some Christians felt like they'd already ossified, that the church had kind of gone stale in 180 A.D., uh, just 100 years after the Apostle John had died, and uh, it had gotten kind of professional. And, and so there was a group uh, following a guy named Montanus, Bible trivia here, his, church history trivia, and he had a couple of prophetesses, and he felt like he was the voice piece of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and they were meeting in Asia Minor in a place called Phrygia. They knew Jesus was about to come back. They were the ones that were most willing to lay down their lives for Christ, very committed, uh, strong in prayer, uh, very energetic, but just to say, this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. You have these two expressions of Christianity that one is more oriented toward uh, the written word and study and, and disciplines and stuff like that, a little bit more maybe stayed, a little more stable. And then you've got the more of a volatile side of Christianity that's more open, maybe more emotional. And each side views the other side skeptically. So the more conservative and Bible side 
sees that as uh, emotionalism and it's like way over the top and dangerous and sometimes it is. And the ones over on the spirit side say, well, you just, you've got the kindling, you just need to light that thing. You're not nearly enthusiastic enough about your faith and God's got a whole lot more for you, etc. Now, interestingly enough, I came to Christ in a charismatic Presbyterian youth group. Now, that probably answers a lot of your questions about why is Henry weird. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know there were any other kind of Christians. When it's the first Christians you've met, you just think this is the way it is. Until then, I went to Georgia Tech and met the Navigators and thought, oh, there are different approaches to this thing. So anyway, like I said, Pentecostalism is large, it's growing, it's affecting the world. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how, what's a, a biblical way to regard that and, you know, because it will come up at times. And one of the things that I found particularly helpful is this dual idea in the Bible. You're going to wonder where in the world am I going with this, but the scribes and the prophets. Okay, so when you think of a scribe, what was a scribe? They wrote, oh, right, scribe it means, you know, it's the word for inscribe, writing. They were the, back before printing presses, which was most of human history. If you wanted to keep having copies of something that was written, you had to copy it. You had somebody had to write it, and most people couldn't read and couldn't write. But there was a, a profession that arose to take care of that. That that's kind of what they did. They sat there every day uh, by not great light and no glasses, and are just copying letter for letter the Bible. But because that's what you do all day, guess who happens to know the Bible pretty well? <laughs> the scribes. Uh, so there was, and, and there was no place in the Bible that the Bible says, "Okay, make sure you got scribes." Where you know they had they had a thing for this, how you get priests, and and sort of a bit of a protocol for kings. But there wasn't a, some command in the Bible that will make sure you oh you got to always have a couple of scribes handy. They just needed it, and so they did it. Yeah, there's not anything in the Bible that says you need. You have to have plumbers, but we need plumbers, and so we have plumbers. So scribes performed a service for the body of Christ to make sure there was an ongoing supply of the written scriptures that every synagogue would need and every church needs, etc. Now, who were the prophets? Who would you say the prophets were? Yeah, I mean, these, these and also not, not a position, they were speaking for God. It wasn't something that God said, okay, make sure you, you always need some prophets. They would just appear, and they weren't even always correct, right? I mean, they were, they were false prophets. Uh, so it wasn't as though you could necessarily, anybody that gets up and says, well, I have a word from God, uh, the Bible says, well, if it's a prophecy, uh, see if it happens. And if it doesn't happen, well, that must not be a good prophet, you know? <laughs> So you have these two things. Now, the scribes were more traditional because they were focusing on the written word of God, uh, maybe more like a, an, in a legal kind of a way that, you know, it is written. And the prophets were a bit more controversial. They would usually stir things up a whole lot more than the scribes would. So anyway, I believe there are these two emphases that we see not only in recent history, not only in church history, but in all religious history, you've got these two inclinations, an inclination toward being more conservative, more careful, cautious, and according to the word, and those that are more volatile and open, open to the Spirit's leading. And, and we do believe that God speaks, mostly through the Scripture, but uh, 
who's to say that God can't speak to anybody anytime he wants to in any way he wants to. So, so I want to I use this as our paradigm for thinking about these two approaches to faith and Christianity. So the scribe is more focused on knowing, the prophet on seeing. The scribe emphasizes studies, Bible studies, uh, word studies. The prophet emphasizes experiences. The scribe, it's like they gather firewood. The prophet calls down fire. The scribes are more tranquil. The prophet's more enthusiastic. The scribes, uh, and I say scribes in quotes. You know, this is, this is just two uh, emphases here. The scribes more on principles. The prophets, uh, prophetic side of Christianity is more focused on miracles. The scribe, law, the prophet, revelation. The, the scribe's favorite phrase is, it is written. The prophet's favorite phrase is, the Lord told me. The scribe is more traditional, the prophet more controversial. The scribe focuses on the written word, the prophet on the prophetic word. The scribes work to preserve, the prophets push for transformation. The scribes function more like brakes in a car, and the prophets are more like the accelerator. Let's just get this thing moving here. And who wants a car without brakes and an accelerator? You kind of need both, don't you? Good example of scribe is Ezra, of a prophet is Isaiah. But there are also bad examples of the scribes in the New Testament that were against Christ and the false prophets in the Old Testament. The preference of the scribe, scribal approach is Bible study. The preference of the prophet is prophetic side is prayer. On the prophet side, they're much quicker to do an all-night vigil or to fast and pray. Uh, that's just not, it's not as though we would never do that. It's just not, um, one, one thing we noticed in Argentina, the uh, Tuesday night prayer meeting was, uh, or the women had different activities uh, where they'd have a speaker and stuff like that. But one time they said, okay, this next Tuesday, we're going to fast all day and meet and just pray. They had three times the attendance because they were going to fast and pray. It was more of a prophet side type of a church rather than a scribal type of church. Neither bad nor good, just a different emphasis. In the extreme, the scribal side can be bound in its traditions. On the prophetic side, they can get taken away with their emotions. The danger on the scribe side is legalism. On the prophetic side is deception, because who knows if God said that. They said God said that, but maybe not. The necessity of the scribe is the breath of God. The prophetic side is the light of God. I'm moving through this quickly. You can think about it later if you want to. How it can kill. Both sides can kill. On the scribal side, the, it's the paralysis of pride. Knowledge puffs up. The more you know, even though that can be very helpful, it can kind of go to your head because now you realize you know more than somebody else knows, and that feels good. And the, how it can kill on the prophetic side is false doctrines. In the armor, we see it's the sword of the Spirit. So in the Bible, we see there's not really, they're not pitted against each other. They're actually combined. And in worship, he says he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. I believe everybody has a natural inclination. That's why we tend to self-select in our churches. Some people are just more oriented toward stability, consistency, predictability, uh, there's something very reassuring of founding your life on the principles of God's Word. And you just have a more uh, careful, cautious, studious approach to the way you live your life. And some people are more uh, free-spirited, and the whole idea of walking by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, it just, it's just very attractive to them. 
And then some of us are just a little, maybe a little bit more in the middle. But just saying, there's just like some people are right-handed, left-handed, it's not as though either of those preferences is wrong, uh, but we do see that uh, demonstrated in Christianity. What I do notice is it's probably not as helpful to assume that I'm right in everything and the other person is wrong in everything. And that can be our tendency. So let's look at some possible solutions. The first one is to realize that no one is right about everything. So I have my preferences and I have my opinions and I even have my convictions. Uh, but I still could be wrong on some of those things. And so walking in a humble way and uh, being open to learning from people that view things in a different way. And that's good in general in life, isn't it? But Joshua chapter 5 that, that the angel of the Lord appears, and Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? The, you know, this is with Jericho. And the angel of the Lord says, no. Well, that wasn't really the question. The question was, are you with us or with them? He says, no. He said, I'm not with either of you. I mean, like, we're, I'm God, and, and um, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. So God isn't in the business of taking sides with the non-spirit side or the spirit side or uh, he's above all of that and our humility to to realize that uh, just about everyone knows more than me about something and in that I can learn from them and that, that doesn't mean they're right about everything but it also doesn't mean they're wrong about everything and to continue to be open listening learning is a healthy posture for us Secondly, there's another path, uh, the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 is a fascinating passage. And let me just read, read this. I think I just gave you the reference. But Paul says, For the word of the cross, in other words, the message that Jesus was crucified, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, it sounds like kind of a dumb way to solve the problems of the world, to have the most wonderful person come to earth and he gets lynched, mugged and lynched. It's like, what, what? You know, uh, that's the, the foolishness of this message of um, a crucified God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? See, there's that word. Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Another translation is it seems like sheer silliness to the world, our, our basic message that you're a sinner and Christ came, died. I mean, we're used, so used to it. It's like, well, what? You know, but to them, it's like, what? <laughs> and uh, just a side note, it's quite interesting what comes up when you Google ways to call a person stupid. I don't know why it is that people like to call other people stupid. Um, but the world thinks Christians are foolish to believe what we believe. There's like a list of 3,000 ways to call somebody stupid. You know, a few fries short of a happy meal. They're missing a couple of tiles on their space shuttle. Flower short of an arrangement. So look at verse 22 if you've, if you've looked it in your Bible, but, or you'll remember it. For indeed, listen to this, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. 
Jews asked for signs. What do you mean Jews asked for signs? What, what signs? Miracles, attesting miracles. Miracles that prove that God is with you. And the Greeks searched for wisdom. So you've got uh, the prophet side, they're, they're, those kind of people, they want to see something. They want to see some miracles, something that's uh, a powerful representation, they, the, an emphasis on healing, whatever it might be. And the scribe side is looking for wisdom, knowledge, to understand uh, what are the principles. And he doesn't take sides here. The very next verse is, even though the Jews are asking for signs and they would be happy if we would do more miracles, and the Greeks search for wisdom and we could tell them more, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Why? Because it doesn't look powerful and it doesn't look clever. That's the miracle of the cross. Someone once said that there was no miracle. He just died. He didn't show off. He could have said, watch how I pop these nails out of my hands, you know, stand back. He didn't do anything impressive. He could have done uh, some kind of miracles there on the cross. He didn't. He could have, when they said, well, you know, you healed others, why can't you heal yourself, and this and that and the other. They came and said all these horrible things, and he didn't come back with a clever retort, you know, a repost. Uh, he was just quiet. And so the heart of what God has given us isn't something that's primarily about power or wisdom. It's not about signs and wonders or uh, knowledge and biblical principles. He says the, the, the center of gravity of Christianity is love that lays down its life for another. And we could always be more wise and knowledgeable, and we could maybe God could use us to do powerful things, but God says that's not the main thing. Uh, the main thing isn't being spirit-filled or knowing all your doctrines. He says that's being like Jesus. It's being kind, humble, loving, and viewing it as a great honor to lay down your life to help others, even if they're not grateful. God spends all of his days serving and helping people that are blaming him for things. And he says, follow me, and I'll use you too. So realize that God doesn't approach this taking sides. He says, well, you know, all of this stuff, the good stuff is fine, uh, but that's not the heart. The heart of our message is the message of the cross. It's the message of love that lays down its life for another. God went an infinite distance and paid an infinite price to be reconciled to you, his enemy, who wasn't looking for him. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. Third, learn to value the things that God values. I must say, when you're around miracles, it does turn your head, particularly if there are a lot of them and it's undeniable. In Argentina, you, I could pretty much sit with anybody for about an hour and they would tell me story after story of the miracles they'd see. So, I mean, we don't have that problem here. But when you're around it, it's like, wow. I mean, you spend your time saying, wow. But what does God say wow about? What impresses God? What does he value? What gets his attention? I listed four things here. One is intimacy with him. He said, uh, Jeremiah 9, don't boast about how much you know or how powerful you are or how wise you are. Uh, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
being close to God, being intimate with God. God notices that we are seeking his face and putting him first and loving him. Second character, the fruit of the Spirit. None of them have anything to do with power or wisdom. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's all the the message of the cross, isn't it? Um, And we see this in the life of Job. Uh, It was his character. Third, obedience. God so values that heart of obedience. Mary saying, Lord, behold the bond slave of the, of the Lord. Let it be done to me however you'd wish. Well, that wasn't a miraculous power and it wasn't deep theologically. It was just a heart of surrender and obedience. And another thing that God really values is faith and believing in him. That's, where, that's the only two times I think it says Jesus was astounded was when somebody actually believed him. He says, wow, look at that. You know, the, the centurion says, well, I, I just tell my people to do what they're supposed to do, and they do it, so you don't have to come all the way to my house. You just, just say it, you know? And Jesus says, well, okay, sure. These are the things that impress God. Um, he's not impressed with our knowledge. He already knows everything, so uh, whatever we know is not that much. And he's not impressed even if, if in his name uh, we do miracles. God does miracles all the time. I mean, that's like cheap stuff to him as miracles. I sort of view miracles like gold. That here on earth it's very valuable. In heaven they just pave the street with it. It's like it's not that big of a deal. Like We got a lot of that here. Uh, so learning to value what God values. Not that you're not going to value knowledge. Not that you're not going to value miracles, answers to prayer, whatever God chooses to do, but that's not the main thing. And fourth, learn from each other. So what can be learned from the scribes? So the the more traditional, uh, maybe reformed, historically approach, uh, what can all of worldwide Christianity learn from reformed, Presbyterian, our, our natural tendencies? Uh, And from this side of Christianity, I want to continue to learn faithfulness, perseverance, a love for the truth, the Word of God, obedience, submission. The the more conservative side of Christianity is the most consistent part of Christianity. They're not so up and down. It's not so volatile. So maybe they don't fly so high, but they usually don't fall so hard. They're very generous, uh, giving, serving, and it's, uh, in general, it can go to an, ex- an extreme on the knowledge side, but in general, it's a, it's a humble approach to faith that you're, you still want to keep learning and growing. On the, uh, what can be learned from the prophet side? Well, I've spent like 20 years of my life on the prophet side or around, around prophet type folks, you know, Pentecostals, charismatic, Latin America's. That's pretty much what everybody is. So you, it's not as though you get to pick. You, know? <laughs> you want to be a Christian, unless you're with the Catholics. And from the prophet side, we can learn more about faith, simplicity, devotion, zeal, joy, courage. Just sometimes being around people that have that deep experience of the presence of God, have seen the hand of God working, is a great reminder of how near God is how powerful he is, and just the delight of, of knowing him in a personal way. Uh, if you're a scribe, 
you know, so more on the, on the traditional side, you may need to experience more of the reality of the truth you already know. We can know things that are true, but somehow it, we haven't necessarily, we wouldn't say we've experienced it that much. I'm forgetting his name, but he wrote the, the song Majesty. He said, a man with, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Jack Hayford, you know, that you really have entered into the reality of your faith and experiencing more of that truth. Uh, if you're a scribe, God wants his truth to be made flesh in your life. Seek opportunities to pray with prophet types. Prophet types pray a little bit more enthusiastically. It's, it's uh, an expression of the type of faith they have. Ask God to give you more experiences uh, with his Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit can do a lot of things, and sometimes we haven't tarried. Jesus says, tarry in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Uh, every Sunday we say, uh, we stand there and say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. You know, it's like, oh, you know, that's what it says, so we just say it, you know. But to come to a place where, you know what? I think I really do believe in the Holy Ghost, that he become more real, more dear uh, to us. For people that are maybe more on the prophet side, uh, to make sure you evaluate all experiences in light of God's word and not the other way around. Just because I feel it, then it's true, not necessarily. Understand that the heart is more deceitful than all else. I could be wrong. I, you know, I feel like God is saying this, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, dedicate yourself to a lifelong study of God's word. Learn more about Bible doctrines. Uh, we can profit from each other. So in conclusion, we be, it's like two wings on an airplane. It's a fruitless pursuit to pit one wing against the other wing. No, we're just left-wingers. You know, we don't like those right-wing things. You know, the, we don't like the prophet stuff. And the prophet's saying, we don't want to be the frozen chosen. We don't need doctrines and Bible study. You know, the Bible is everything God said yesterday. We want to know what's God saying now, you know. Uh, it's like, you, know, you need both wings on your airplane. And to realize also it's not about either of the wings. It's about the cross of Christ, uh, the love of God, uh, our opportunity to love God and care about people, to lean into the truth of God, to count on the Spirit of God, and follow uh, our Savior. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about what God has given us as far as a picture, you know, a picture to put in our mind of what He's really after when he's engaging with us, what's he really thinking, I want my children, to, I want my followers to become like? And he doesn't say, well, I'd like you to become giants. In the faith, I want you to be like lions, I want you to be like computers, you just know the, the you've memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know the catechism in Greek, you know. We're not supposed to just necessarily be huge databases of theological truths or, or biblical truths. He's told us primarily that, he says, unless you become like a little child, you're not going to really fit in my kingdom. And what characterizes a child? Now, he's not saying be childish, but be childlike. Simple, dependent, without adequate knowledge, with insufficient strength. You know, on these two things, on the knowledge side and on the power side, children score low. 
There's so much stuff they don't know. And there's so much, so many things they cannot do. And God says, that's, that's how I want you to view yourself, because that's how you are, and that's how I view you. And uh, you'll live longer and do better if you quit taking yourself so seriously and trying to show that you're better than this or that and the other. He says, would you just calm down and be more like a little child? I like to think that God views us our whole life like we were about three or four years old. And he knows we're little, and he kind of thinks we're cute. I love listening to my four-and-a-half-year-old. I just love to hear him talk. He talks so precisely, and, oh, granddaddy, we just took care of him. And uh, last year, in, when our, our daughter and son-in-law went out on a date there in Singapore, and TJ was supposed to be a good boy when it came time to go to bed. Everything was fine until it came time to go to bed, and he, he really didn't want to go to bed. So anyway, this, this was kind of a lengthy process of, uh, of him crying, coming out, us putting him back in. And finally, after about 10 minutes of that, I just uh, there was a little latch on the door. So I put him in there. I said, you need to stay in there. I latched the door. Well, you know, World War III broke out in that room, but it only lasted about 15 minutes, and he went to sleep. And the next morning, he goes into his dad's bedroom at, at 6.30 in the morning. He says, Papa, because Thomas only speaks Spanish with him. Papa, anoche el abuelo me encerró con llave mi pieza. Last night, granddaddy locked me in my room with a key. <laughs> and my son looked at him and says, did you not obey granddaddy? He said, no. <laughs> now, this is when he was, had just turned four. And he says, well, you're going to have to go apologize. And I was sitting out in the living room with my Bible and coffee reading, and this little, tiny little face appears. You know, it's 6.30 in the morning. And he says, granddaddy, I'm so sorry I didn't obey you last night. Please forgive me. <laughs> so God views you like about a three- or four-year-old, you know? And he loves you that way, too. And what do I mean by that? He's not counting on you to have all the answers. He's not counting on you to necessarily make a huge contribution. Uh, it, it would be easier for him to change the tire without your help with the lug nuts. But he takes delight in you and realizing that uh, he's called us to be that near, that dear to him is just, is just wonderful. So anyway, we'll close with that. Usually I make somebody mad with this because sometimes people are pretty entrenched on one preference and uh, I, there's nothing I can do if I made you mad. I'm sorry. But I found so much blessing by being exposed to the different parts of the body of Christ that each, each part has maybe some things I would do differently, but how enriching to be around uh, different believers and the things um, we can learn from them. I'll close with 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Paul writing, But we have this treasure, the treasure of the glory of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. 
not strong in ourselves, but strong in him. Strong in the scripture and also asking God, Lord, help me to be strong in the spirit. Uh, you said, tarry in Jerusalem. Help me, Lord, to wait on you. Teach me more of the life of God that you want for me. I'm happy to be your little child. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much for the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And we want to keep growing. Lord, we're not as young as we used to be, but there's so much more we could learn and profit from. So help us to be open, to be eager, to be humble, to be faithful, and to give our lives away to serve those you've put in our path. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.